Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Have you ever seen a decorated skull on someone's desk? Or maybe you've noticed skulls in church architecture or on tombs. They're artistic reminders of one's own death, or in Latin, memento mori, which translates to remember that you have to die. On this episode, Bishop talks more about what that means and how, at the same time, we should also remember the resurrection. Then Bishop answers listener-submitted questions on the Catholic Church in China, Holy Week Masses, and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We're still in Lent. So how's your Lent going, Bishop? So far, so good, you know, but I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose to a certain level, that's good. I guess at a certain level, maybe that's a dangerous yeah. thing. But. Yeah, I can't believe it. We're in the third week of Lent already. Yeah. yeah. We're halfway there, halfway there. So have you ever kept a skull on your desk no, I haven't. Why do you ask such a question? Well, some saints have done that, and <laughs> I, I feel like that's kind of a topic that we're going to get into later today about memento mori and the this idea of remembering our death. And every once in a while, like you'll see a picture of, or not a picture, we don't have pictures of St. Francis, but a, an image of St. Francis, and he might have a skull on his desk or on the shelf yeah. behind him or something like that, or in his hand, even. Yeah, and St. Jerome, too. Uh-huh. But I guess I, I'm not that holy. <laughs> <laughs> was it, was it a real human skull that they had or what do you think? I I don't know. That's a good question. Huh. That's a good question. Could be. All right. Well, but we're going to talk about skulls today. I well, I guess uh, in a roundabout way maybe. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> okay, we'll see. Do you have an opening prayer for us? Yeah, I'll use the prayer from mass today. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grant, we pray, O Lord, that schooled through Lenten observance and nourished by your word, through holy restraint, we may be devoted to you with all our heart and be ever united in prayer. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, well, this whole idea of skulls and memento mori, I think, kind of has a connection with Lent. And I think I've seen recently a resurgence just on social media and stuff, people talking about it, uh, posting images about memento mori, sometimes like a decorated skull, and thought maybe you could just share a little bit about, is this have a history in the Catholic Church, or is this something that's kind of come up more recently? Well, really, even see some of this even before Christianity, this kind of focus on the inevitability of death. Mm-hmm. You know, memento mori, in it's Latin, it means remember, memento uh-huh. mori, to die. Remember that you have to die. Mm-hmm. That's what it basically means. Remember that you have to die. And... When you think about it, at the very beginning of Lent, we're reminded of this when we receive the ashes. Reminds us of our mortality, that we will have to die. One of the formulas that can be said when the ashes are imposed is, remember man, you are dust, 
and to dust you will return. Mm-hmm. It really is pretty stark to be reminded of that, that we all will have to face death. That, by the way, that uh, formula, remember, man, that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return, uh, goes back to the uh, words of God to Adam in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 19. Those are the words that God said to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. So it's really like the original, after original sin, you have this this sentence that, yeah, you'll have to die. Mm -hmm. So death entered the world, and every descendant of Adam and Eve bears the sign of death. We share that inheritance, the law of death. To dust you will return. Now, that may seem rather depressing when we think about it, but it's, it's a reminder, and it's an important reminder that one day our bodies will fail and we will die. It may happen through illness, long illness, age, maybe an accident, whatever. Um, so in Christianity, as the years went on, especially up in, when you get to the uh, Middle Ages, for example, there's this emphasis on, you know, that one day we'll be judged by God. There will be a judgment. There's heaven, hell, there's purgatory. And there was a lot of moralizing. You know, some philosophies, especially in classical antiquity, the emphasis is now is the time to eat, drink, to be merry, all of that. Well, the Christians had this idea, okay, let's not forget that death will come, that Mm -hmm. these things of this world will pass away, that earthly pleasures, luxuries, achievements, all those will will pass away. So so there was this focus on on the afterlife. Remember that you will die. As a matter of fact, there's a quote in the book of Ecclesiasticus in, in the Bible, chapter seven, verse 40. It says, in all your works, be mindful of your last end and you will never sin. Okay, it's that same idea of remember you are dust and unto dust you shall return. Mm -hmm. Remember that you will be judged. So we should be thinking about the afterlife, about the immortality of the soul, and about growing in virtue so that we will live with God forever in heaven. One of the really important things to keep in mind, though, is you know, we don't just focus on death. I mean, we're prepared in Lent, preparing in Lent to celebrate the Paschal mystery, which, you know, it doesn't end with the death of Jesus. It ends with the resurrection and his ascension into heaven. So what we hear at the beginning of Lent, yes, we remember death, but at the same time, we don't forget the resurrection. We don't forget that Christ conquered death that he is the redeemer of the world, that on the third day he rose again. So yeah, we need to hear the words, you are dust and unto dust you will return. But let's not forget the definitive truth of the gospel, the truth about the resurrection, Mm -hmm. that God has prepared a place for us, that we're called to take part in the resurrection of Christ. This memento mori, by the way, you you see it in architecture, you see funeral art, you see tombs that depict skeletons. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see all this in art and architecture, which, so you see this whole memento mori idea, even clocks. I don't know if you've ever seen 
clocks that have, for example, on it, the Latin motto, tempus fugit, time flees, or sometimes the Latin motto, ultima forsan, perhaps the last hour, (laughs) you know? So you have these time pieces and public clocks, kind of like death clocks, uh, (laughs) you know, or have an hourglass on them. Or you mentioned the skull, Mm -hmm. again, a reminder that, I mean, you even see pendants and lockets and that with these kinds of things you have to be careful it doesn't become too macabre really you know right. like uh, the grim reaper and all that kind of stuff yeah i guess and some might even see this in catholic architecture or art and see it with the saints or whatever and think that it's that it's depressing or it's sad or it's focusing on the negative you know what you mentioned that we need to also keep this in balance with the resurrection but what is, I guess, the the benefits or dangers of diving too much into this? Yeah. Well, the benefit is, you know, to keep in mind that, yeah, we will be judged, mm-hmm. that our mortal lives will end. But the danger is that person falls into despair or becomes too focused on on death and then doesn't live life to the full. Mm-hmm. You know, we're called to... Uh, to live our life and to live it with joy, to live it with um, hope, and um, so yeah, that's why it's important that we that we not neglect the great mystery of the resurrection. As I've said on this program before, the church is the community of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do carry our cross. We're called to uh, prepare for death, for a holy death. At the same time with uh, trust in God's mercy and with hope of sharing in Christ's resurrection. Mm-hmm. There's a church in Rome, by the way, called the Bone Church. It's a Capuchin church on the Via Veneto. Okay. Which kind of, um, and there's a few other chapels, you know, in the world that have the bones of, of the deceased where the walls are, like if you go into this Bone Church in Rome, this Capuchin church, the walls are, covered by human remains, mostly bones. Even the lamps and everything are made out of human bones. And as you enter the chapel, it says something like, uh, what we are, you will be. So in other words, that's that memento mori, remember that that you will die. So you just have to not, I would say, become totally focused on that without the, the other half of the story, the good news of eternal life that Christ promised us. Yeah. I guess the other aspect of that is a fear of death. And I, I maybe this is the difference between a, a healthy fear that, you know, we want to live our lives well so that when we do die, we get to experience heaven versus an unhealthy fear of death where we're scared to die because I guess it, it puts it into our earthly joy and pleasure. Right. You know, I've, I've been with people, and I'm sure a lot of us have people with a terminal illness, well, you know, and, or have just received bad news of that they don't have long to live. Mm -hmm. And some, sometimes the reaction is, is what you just mentioned, where there's this, this, uh, awful fear. And some of that's natural Mm -hmm. to have some fear, but what I see in people of faith is often that fear gets transformed, that maybe after hearing the news, 
you know, their sadness and grief and fear. But then through prayer, there can be a sense of peace about it, even a, a sense of, um, of readiness to meet the Lord. Again, that rekindling of hope. It's sad when someone, and I have seen some people who that fear is just doesn't go away. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wonder then, you know, I, I, I try to say, you know, trust God, trust God loves you, trust that he's, that you'll meet the Lord, you'll encounter him. Because fear can be so, you know, fear can lead to depression, it can, it can uh, really cripple a person. So I think that's where our faith is really needed when one receives such uh, difficult news. Mm -hmm. In college, when I learned about saints that kept a skull on their desk or whatever, I thought, I want to do this. I want to remember, you know, yeah, I'm not living for this world because, you know, one day I'm going to die. And so after a Halloween sale, I bought a plastic skull that you pull a lever and a piece of candy comes out of its mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I put daily vitamins in there. So, so every oh. every morning I'd get up, look at my skull, pull the lever, get a little daily vitamin. <laughs> Did you keep that, Kyle? Do you still have it? No, I don't still have it. I don't know whatever happened to it. <laughs> Good. All right. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, where you can also find past episodes of the show. Or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some questions about the church in China. If a mass was invalid and more, coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who has generously offered to answer questions that listeners have submitted, like our first listener submitted question. I was recently at mass outside our diocese and during the consecration, the priest said, quote, do this and remember me, end quote. Does that make it invalid? No, it's wrong. It's, it's illicit. It's illicit. We should never be changing the words of the prayers of Mass, especially uh, that part of the Mass, mm -hmm. right after the consecration, the words to be said are, do this in memory of me. But that would not make the, the consecration invalid, no. It'd have to be something more significant of a change in the actual words that the priest says when he says, this is my body and this is the chalice of my blood. So I would say, don't worry, that wasn't an invalid mass. It wasn't an invalid consecration. It was illicit, though. Can you explain the difference between illicit and invalid? Okay. Illicit is something that is against the law. Okay. So it's violating a law. Okay. So to change the words is violating the church's law. Invalid means 
it's it's much worse because it means that what is supposed to be done doesn't happen. So, for example, if one changes the words of consecration or words of absolution or whatever, or the formula for baptism, you know, let's say someone baptizes in the name of the creator and the redeemer and the sanctifier, that's invalid. That means no effect, Mm -hmm. that there's no effect. Baptism doesn't occur. Okay. And that can happen with any of the sacraments where something, and not only in the form, the words that are said, but the material used. Let's say someone used a different beverage and not real wine at mass. Well, Mm -hmm. that would be invalid. You have to have valid matter, the material. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that you can understand. And you'd have to, you know, if you have a question, you could always check this. Someone does something illicit you know it's illicit, but then you start thinking, well, I wonder if that's invalid. Mm-hmm. And you might have to, you know, check with the uh, church, you know, say, was was that really more than illicit? Was that actually invalid? You know, and those questions sometimes will come to the Vatican or to the bishop's office. And I suppose in emergency cases, a layperson could baptize so they could potentially do it an invalid baptism, but otherwise would everything else fall on the priest for that? Or is there a way that I, as a lay person at a mass could somehow make the mass invalid? Oh yeah. At mass. No, you couldn't make the Eucharist invalid because it would only the priest. He's the one who uses the elements and says the words. Now as a lay person baptizing though, if you didn't use water and you didn't use the proper form, you could do it could be an invalid baptism yeah so it depends on who the minister is as far as the recipient actually there are some sacraments where where it could invalidate let's say a woman presented and was and a bishop ordained a woman mm-hmm. now you could say well that's on the bishop but it's also on the recipient she wasn't really ordained cuz oh, right. only a man can be ordained so i mean there are sometimes or if you Go to confession, uh, let's say, and um, and your confession's a lie. You know that's that's invalid. Mm-hmm. You know you have to have sorrow for your sins and and intend to. You know that's that's part of the sacrament of penance. So we'd have to look at each sacrament to kind of examine that, yeah. I guess. But mostly, it, most of the time, it has to do with the minister, okay, not the recipient. That helps. Thank you. All right. Next, someone asked. Can you give an update on the Catholic Church in China? Well, that's an interesting question. Of course, with my visit there two years ago, I learned an awful lot. Maybe to review a little bit about the situation of the Catholic Church in China and then where we're at right now. You know, for many years, this uh, this division of the of Catholics in China uh, and tensions between the underground church and the the state recognized church. So there's been this quest to for unity between them, and uh, but it was really back. I think it was in the like 1940s, maybe late 40s, when when all the Christian missionaries were expelled by Chairman Mao Zedong from China, and then the uh, all the Catholic churches were closed in the 50s, and the underground church developed. So. And that was because all the Catholic churches were closed. 
But then in the 1970s, late in the 70s, the government of China established the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association. The Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, which meant that the government uh, invited Catholics to join. And this would be a government-registered church. And some people did. Some Catholics did, but others refused. So some decided, no, they're not going to join this. They're going to remain faithful to Rome. They're going to continue to be underground. So, for example, when the church was controlled by the state, for example, who decided who would become bishops? The state decided, not the Mm -hmm. Vatican. That's definitely wrong. So back in... 2018, the Vatican and the government of China entered into an agreement called a provisional agreement, temporary, and uh, it's kind of a secret deal because most of it was the contents aren't made public. But we do know that the back in September 2018, that the, there was an agreement that allowed the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association to select nominees for bishops. And then the names would be submitted to the Pope for his approval. So there was this compromise, okay? The state would present priests that nominated for bishops, but they wouldn't be ordained bishops without Vatican approval. So this seemed like a way to bring the underground church and the officially recognized church together. And this created a lot, a lot of controversy, this agreement between Beijing and the Vatican. And what Pope Francis decided was to recognize some of these bishops who had been ordained without permission of the Vatican. Uh, There were eight bishops who had been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Well, the Pope decided to recognize them as uh, legitimate And on the other hand, the Chinese government recognized three bishops from the underground church. Mm -hmm. So there seemed like there was this movement to try to bring the underground church and the official church together. It was kind of, um, you know, there was some hope that, that this might unify the church in China. And Cardinal Parolin, who's the Vatican Secretary of State, he worked a lot on this. He supported this deal. He thought it would benefit the entire Chinese Catholic community, but others severely criticized it and said that, no, this is kind of giving in to the government. Cardinal Joseph Zen, the former bishop of Hong Kong, he was has been very outspoken in criticizing this deal because he, he said, you can't trust the Chinese communist authorities. He condemned you know, the human rights violations of China, especially the way it treats religious minorities. So he's been a big defender of the underground Catholic Church in China. There's clear, I saw it when I was there, there are limitations on religious freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, Catholics can't really fully live their faith. They don't allow religious education before someone's 18 years old. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of, I mean, I'd say it's still a persecuted church. And I know that there are strong opinions on both sides regarding this this deal. 
So this past fall, the deal, it was provisional agreement. It was evidently uh, continued. So it was to be for like two years, but now it's, they're continuing with it as a, you know, and I think we just have to keep, there's been some bishops where there's been agreement, new bishops who've been ordained, and the Vatican and the Chinese communist authorities have agreed on the candidate. So some dioceses that hadn't had bishops for many years now have bishops, but there've only been a few of these. And as I said, I think it's still too early to tell. You know, I don't know, you know, as far as giving an update, I haven't been keeping up with it in recent months, but uh, I haven't seen any big news other than the fact that the 2018 provisional agreement has been renewed. Mm -hmm. So I think we still have to see what happens. Um, yeah. If I remember right, when you talked about that last, and maybe we can put a link for that episode in the description of this one, but you talked about a document that people had to sign when going from the underground church to the public church, and it kind of was giving over some of the rights to the government or, or, or maybe saying that they wouldn't do certain things. I, I can't remember exactly, but I think that was kind of a little iffy on if that was a good move or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I'm not even sure where that stands right now because the Vatican wanted some changing in the wording of the document. And I don't know if the Chinese communists have given in to that. The uh, Vatican was saying it was okay for, for Catholics to sign, but some Catholics in their conscience felt, no, this yeah. is kind of giving in too much. So, I, yeah, part of the problem, Kyle, is this. The exact agreement hasn't been public. It's been, it's kind of a secret deal. Huh. So it's kind of hard to talk a whole lot about it without knowing exactly what it says. You know, even when I was over in China and I was talking to these bishops, I mean, I'd ask questions and, uh, you know, I didn't get answers to all the questions I asked. I think they were hesitant perhaps. And, you know, you're worried about getting eavesdropping or whatever right. you call it, that anything you say, someone else could be hearing in on what you're saying. I mean, it, it really is a, a strange situation, you know, where you, I didn't feel real threat. I mean, I had to be somewhat pr prudent in what I said. I didn't want to get the priests and bishops in trouble by saying something that would make the communist authorities angry. I mean, I didn't care so much about myself, but I didn't want to get them in trouble. But you know, I did talk a bit about religious freedom, but not in context of China, but in context of the United States, mm -hmm. so that they could maybe read between the lines. Right. <laughs> but you know, the fact think that you really aren't free to get up and preach the full truth of the Catholic faith from the pulpit at mass. You really aren't. Mm. I mean, you can't get up and criticize the government's policy on birth control or on abortion. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll be shut down. You could be put in prison. I did ask some of them, I said, well, how can you really live the Catholic faith under this circumstance? How do you pass on what's right and wrong and the moral teachings of the church in this area? And it seemed to me that they say it, it happens at home in the families, but it can't be public, you know, mm -hmm. it can't be where others hear you, you know? So, so it's operating under a lot of, of constrictions. And of course you don't have things like Catholic schools, none of that's permitted. So really the church in China is persecuted. But what I think the Vatican was most concerned about was that the church in China was divided, mm -hmm. that you had faithful 
both that who were members of the underground church, others in the state-sponsored church. And so therefore you had bishops in both groups. And that was just a situation that the Vatican really wants to stop and have just one church. In so doing, they the, the church is giving up its freedom to a, just appoint on its own its own bishops. So they they're only choosing from among those that are approved by the Chinese government. That's happened in history before. This isn't the first time. There are other times, but it, you know where secular governments have had a say in the choice of bishops, in, even in Europe, mm-hmm. we haven't had that ever in the history of the Church in the United States. Okay. Well, speaking of bishops, somebody asked, do decisions made by the U.S. Bishops Conference automatically apply to all Catholics in this country, or do they require Vatican approval first? Oh, interesting. Well, you know, the Episcopal Conference, the in, in our case, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, you know, there's canon law uh, about Episcopal Conference, about this assembly or this institution of bishops in a particular country or in a particular region. So the Episcopal Conference is able to make general decisions or general decrees only in cases that the universal law of the church allows. So it's hmm. not like... Um, you know, we we never act in a sense outside of what's allowed by the universal church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to, for example, if there's going to be a decree and we would have it enacted at a, a plenary meeting, as I mentioned earlier, both in November and in in June, we have plenary meetings of all the U.S. bishops. There has to be two-thirds votes of those who belong to the conference, those who have a deliberative vote for a decree to be valid. But once it is, then it is obligatory after it's reviewed by the apostolic see. So there's not only the fact of the bishops approving by a two-thirds majority, it also needs to be reviewed by the Vatican, and then it's lawfully promulgated. And yes, at that point, after receiving Vatican approval, it applies to all Catholics in the country. Can you give an example of something recently that would meet that? Oh, good question. Something recently. You know, we've had the thing with Holy Days. We've had, you know, oh, nothing off the top of my mind comes, you know, recent. When you say Holy Days, would that be like moving a Holy Day from a weekday to a weekend or something like that? Correct. Okay. Correct. That that takes a two-thirds majority, and then it needs approval by the Holy See. Okay. Or let's say we were going to restore abstinence from meat on all Fridays hmm. of the year. If that was proposed as a discipline, as a penitential discipline, it would need two-thirds majority of the U.S. bishops and the approval of the Apostolic See. Okay. So again, th- this would only happen in the context of what Episcopal conferences have the authority to to deal with. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to issues of doctrine, I mean, there, then you're in a whole different thing. I mean, we could have a teaching document, for example, but really every individual bishop in his diocese is the chief teacher. When there's a teaching document from the uh, conference or from the doctrine committee of the conference, which I chair, that's just a document from the committee, mm-hmm. okay? It's helpful to people. But it's, 
you know, or the document we had on the use of vaccines, which we've talked about, mm -hmm. where we really are explaining church teaching, church moral teaching. It's, it's not something new. It's an application to a particular situation that we're facing here in our country. Right. But there's never any new doctrine that can be decided upon by an Episcopal conference. It doesn't have that kind of teaching authority like the College of Bishops has throughout the world, united with the Pope. Okay. Right, someone asked, Holy Week is still a couple weeks away, but do we know if the same restrictions as last year will be in place? Well, last year, we did not have public liturgies during Holy Week, so right. that will not be... We will have public liturgies. I was trying to remember sure. what last Holy Week was yeah. like. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we will have... Yeah, we'll have in our parishes, we'll have the the liturgies of Palm Sunday and the Easter Triduum like usual, but it'll be with the current restrictions, the mm -hmm. social distancing and the face masks. So I'm... Yeah, it'll be just great to have people in the churches again, even though because of the physical distancing, perhaps we won't be able to have the uh, the same number of people that we would have before the pandemic. I think a lot of places will be live streaming liturgies. I know my liturgies at the cathedrals in South Bend and Fort Wayne will all be live streamed. Mm -hmm. uh, the chrism masses in Fort Wayne and South Bend will also be live streamed because mm -hmm. we won't be able to have full cathedrals like we normally it would be packed right. for the chrism masses well with the social distancing we won't be able to do that but at least we will have public chrism masses and public liturgies of holy week and and easter which we didn't have last year okay so we can give thanks to god for that yeah I don't think, you know, if we were at a point of herd immunity, we wouldn't have to do all the social distancing perhaps, but but that's not going to be by the time of Holy sure. Week for sure. If I think the earliest would probably be the summer or the early fall. And because of the social distancing, there might be less space in our churches. Do you think some of them might offer multiple times for some of these? Like a Good Friday, you could only have at, in the afternoon, right? You couldn't do multiple Good Friday services. No, they do allow, the, the church okay. does allow a second, for pastoral reasons, you could have a second Good Friday service. Oh, okay. I do know that, but I don't think it would be possible for the Easter vigil. Okay. But there's more people, my experience is more people are in churches on Good Friday than they are at the Easter vigil. So huh. uh, yeah, a second, a second Good Friday liturgy could be celebrated. Hopefully because some are going on Sunday, for Easter Sunday, not because they're oh, right. prioritizing right. Friday over Easter. Right, right, exactly, yeah, exactly. And I think some people don't, I, I, it's a shame more people don't, I wish our churches were full at the Easter vigil, but I mm -hmm. know it's a long liturgy and some people wanna wait till the next day, but I think there are parishes that are adding masses for Easter Sunday, like some places added for Christmas just sure. in case because of the overflow, yeah. All right, a listener wrote in, it's been a while since you've given us an update, Bishop. What books are you currently reading? I'm currently reading about 10, okay. but I have to, you know, I, I get started on one and I, I just wish I had more time to read. I love reading. I just don't have as much time as I would like. I'm still reading that biography of, of uh, Pope Benedict that I mentioned, I think, 
two months ago, but I kind of <laughs> put it down for quite some time because I started reading the biography of St. Catherine Drexel as part of my, you know, since I have her as kind of a special patron during this year. Yeah. And I've, of course, I read articles in that, but those are the two books that are probably at the top of my list. But I get sidetracked because let's say I'm preparing a talk or or a homily or something, I'll start reading a book that is related to it. And then I start getting, so I, I literally, I have about 10 books on my dresser. <laughs> they all have bookmarks in uh-huh. of how far I am. That's just that way. I should stick with one book and finish it. But <laughs> that's that's the truth. <laughs> I think you in books is like me with tabs on my computer, you know, like all these different <laughs> websites and articles <laughs> that I've half read and stuff. So is the, for people that missed last week's conversation about St. Catherine Drexel, you talked about the book. People can check out that episode. But is is that a book that you would recommend, or is there another book that yeah you're reading right now yeah, that by you would Lou suggest? Baldwin? No, I do. I do highly recommend that that biography of Pope Benedict. I highly recommend it. I love biographies. Now, if you don't like biographies, you might not like it. But if you like history, if you like biographies, the new, relatively new biography. And I'm drawing a blank on the author. How can I draw a blank on him? Oh, Peter Sewald. Okay. Peter Sewald's biography of Pope Benedict. And and the book on Mother Catherine Drexel is by Lou Baldwin. It's very good. I like reading Lives of the Saints periodically, and, and that's a good one. Okay. Uh, does the biography of Pope Benedict get into his more recent years, like what he's been up to lately? Um, no, I think that'll be in the second volume. Uh, oh, okay. The first volume, now, as I said, I put it down several weeks ago, and I was up to his uh, late teen years. Huh. Um, so I wasn't even up to his ordination yet, but it was his experience under you know, uh, the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So I found it fascinating, and I can't wait to get back to it. Um, and maybe I will later today if I grab some time because now you make me think about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> like before I go to bed, like read a half hour, you know. Do you ever do that? Uh, I'll lay no. in bed and read. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> do you read bedtime stories to the kids? I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so llama, llama. Get... We got. Uh, we, we read a lot of llama, llama around here. Why don't you read them some of the biography of Pope Benedict? Uh, maybe I will. Hey, would you say it's a kid-friendly story? <laughs> no, not really. Especially not under Nazis. You don't want them going back and having nightmares. Yeah, yeah, going to bed. Well, that sounds interesting, though. One other question here we have is, do you have a favorite winter sport? By winter sport, you mean those that you're actually outside it. You're not talking like, I, I, you wouldn't think of basketball as a winter sport. Well, I, I don't know. I guess we play it in the winter usually as far as competitively. Yeah, I mean, basketball would be. But if you're talking about like, I mean, I, I love basketball, so that would probably be it. But if you're talking about kind of those outdoor, you know, skiing and snowboarding, I, I would say ice skating or any of those. Um, yeah, if I watch the Winter Olympics, I would say probably the skiing. Okay. I think... Ice hockey, somewhat, but I think the skiing I kind of enjoy watching. I've only skied a few times in my life, uh-huh. and uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I, if I would have learned it younger, I probably would have really gotten into it. Uh-huh. Um, have you ever gone skiing? I've gone a couple times. I used to be a youth minister, and so we'd take 
youth up to Michigan and go skiing. And I, I was horrible at it. I, these kids had been skiing their whole lives and they're doing all these big hills and I try to go with them and I nearly kill myself or somebody else. I, I had the ski patrol one time tell me that if I came down like that again, that they were going to take away my pass. And it's like, I, I wasn't doing it on purpose. I promise. <laughs> like, I was just trying not to hit somebody. <laughs> well, I thought I was bad. Now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> no, we really like sledding at our house. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's fun too. Taking yeah. the kids out. We'd, we've got a good hill in town. Yeah. It's hard to find hills in our diocese. Yeah. You know, the only major hill that I know of is where I live when I'm on the South Bend side at the mother house of the Sisters of St. Francis. That's a real hill. That would be a great hill to sled down. I wonder if the sisters sled. I've never seen them sled. And the only thing is, you know, there's a lot of asker. You know, there's a lot of deer on their property when I drive <laughs> up. I, I'm surprised I haven't hit one. Yeah. You know, or drive down the hill. I mean, I've there are a lot of deer. And they also have wild turkeys. Turkeys, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was recording with Sister Ignatia outside one time, and the turkeys kept on bothering us. Yeah. I, I'm kind of afraid of them. They can come <laughs> up and bite you. And... <laughs> no, I, I like the deer better. Yeah. All right. So skiing, though. What about the, yeah. the ski jumps? Yeah. No, that's fun. I mean, the thing is, I love going down. It's such a hassle to get all the way to the top and, and yeah. then... But it, but going down, I, I I really liked it. I didn't. I wasn't too bad. The only thing I had a hard time with at the beginning was how to stop. So right. no one showed me how to stop. So I'm going down a pretty good pace. I was keeping up, and I was saying, "Wow, this is exhilarating." I'm getting near the end. I'm going so fast. I said, how, how do I stop? I just fell. I just, you know, just fell. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> and then how everyone I started laughing like, well, no one taught me how to, you know, how you maneuver the skis so that you slow down and stop. I, I mean, I was glad I didn't break something, right. you know, because I had been going pretty fast. So I was a real amateur. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like you would, if somebody offered to take you skiing, would you do it now? Now I'd have to think about it. I, you know what? I, I am kind of daring. I might, <laughs> I might. <laughs> but some, if someone dared me, yeah, you know, like it's one of those <laughs> <Someone> things. <laughs> <laughs> How often do people dare you to do things? Every now and then, <laughs> a friend or uh, you know nephew or niece or somebody might dare me uncle kevin we dare you to do this and you know i then i can't resist yeah have you ever done the toboggan at pokagon no i have not you know i haven't been up there in the winter oh yeah they've got a, a nice it's it's refrigerated so it doesn't even have to be snowy or icy and so but in the winter okay. it's, it's great it's a, it's a rough ride like you get is it make really? sure your back is in good condition but it's fun. It's fast. Okay. Well, that might be something I would try. Okay. Let me I know dare when you. you and the family are going up. I, I dare you to go to Bobby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how often do you go up there? Uh, it's been a couple years since last. I, I've only been up there twice, and it was like two years okay. in a row we, we went. Okay. But it's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, I've never done a, to a tobogganing. Okay. Well, Although I've seen it there, but I've... Uh, you know, we go up there 
for our priests retreats in June and then for the priests continuing ed- education days in October. So they're not operating at uh, those times. Right. Well, maybe you should change the date. So go you're meeting winter. in the winter. You can yeah. toboggan. Just go up and yeah, that would, now you have planted an idea in my mind. All right. Once this COVID's over, we'll, we'll do a trip. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Reminder for people listening, if you have questions, text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Take care. You too. Check out the show notes for a link to the July 10th, 2019 episode where Bishop talks about his trip to China. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Catch episodes anytime by searching for Truth and Charity on your favorite podcast app. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.